Well, hey, good morning. Um, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of First Peter. We're going to be in First Peter chapter 2 this morning. Um, if tomorrow morning being Monday is anything like a normal Monday morning in our house, um, what will happen is I will wake up before my wife, Kristen. Um, I usually get up a little bit earlier than she does on Monday mornings because I'm old. And uh, I will go downstairs and I will be sitting at the kitchen table. And the first human voice that I hear on Monday mornings is the voice of a guy by the name of Al Mohler. And I know that's kind of weird, but what happens is as my wife gets up and she's getting ready, she turns on a podcast called The Daily Briefing. And it's put out by a guy by the name of Al Mohler, a strong Christian, was a pastor, has ran seminaries. I think at one point he was head of the Southern Baptist Convention. But he has a morning podcast or a daily podcast called The Daily Briefing. And what he's doing is he's looking at events, current events within the news, from a Christian worldview. That's his stated objective for his show, The Briefing. And as my wife was coming downstairs last week and she was listening to Al Mohler, um, he was talking about a gentleman, uh, an Episcopal priest that had recently died, that had recently passed away. Some of you will recognize the name. His name was uh, John Shelby Spong. And he was an Episcopal priest he was based in Newark, New Jersey, and he functioned as a priest within the Episcopal Church for 40 years. What made the broadcast interesting is that Spong wrote this as it related to Christianity while he was a priest. He said, Christianity is a, and I quote, a dead religion that would have to be enlivened with entirely new theological content. So, so that was his goal. That was his objective as a priest. How do I fix this dead religion that I've involved myself with. So over 40 years of his teaching, he literally denied every tenet of the Christian faith. He didn't believe in God. He wrote this, and I quote, I do not believe in a God. I do not believe that God is a being sitting above the cloud pulling strings. I do not believe that human beings are born evil and that only those who come to God by the blood of Jesus will be saved. The concept of Adam and Eve and original sin he called it pre-Darwinian mythology and post-Darwinian nonsense. He didn't believe in anything involving the supernatural, didn't believe in any miracles, said that the virgin birth was impossible as it related to prayer. He said prayer, and again I quote, little more than a hysterical attempt to turn the holy into the servant of the human. He rejected the idea of biblical atonement. He rejected the resurrection, life after death, and judgment. In essence, if you look at what his beliefs were, the things that he rejected, he, there was nothing left of the Christian faith that he held on to. And yet he served as an Episcopal priest for 40 years. That just seems odd to me. And, and, and why do I care? Why am I telling you about that this morning? Well, it's interesting, in the room that you find yourself seated in this morning, the church that preceded us, First Christ Community Church, then C3, John Shelby Spong, this was his home away from home. He spoke from this stage numerous times. He was a mentor. He was a spiritual guide. He was a, a, a powerful influence on the men that for many decades led this church in this place, he spoke this theology to people who sat, well, not in the chairs that you sat in, those, there used to be pews, but sat in the very room that we're at. John Shelby Spong was adored in this building. It was interesting, I was thinking back 
um, when the cross came off this building, some of you will remember it back in 2009, 2010, I got embroiled in that debate, not intentionally. We just found out that they were taking the cross off the building and we were, I was involved with a ministry locally called International Aid and we said, well, if they're taking it off, we want to put it up at our place. So I got involved in this and I was asked a question from a reporter who said, why are you so angry that this church is taking the cross off its building? And I remember I answered, I said, I'm not angry. I, I agree with their decision to take the cross off the building because I think it's actually confusing to have a church that has a cross on the exterior when what's going on in the interior of the building is completely anti-Christian. If you've denied all the tenets of the faith, don't create the confusion of meeting and gathering under a cross, which is a significant symbol of Christianity. So, you know, events, we never knew it at that time, but the fact that we're here now, we're able to put the cross up. I see God's hand in all of that. But I would just say in this series, as we kind of delve deeply into what it means to be a Christian, what are the basics and the foundations that we believe as followers of Jesus Christ, what are the things that we hold dearly? And then these things that we hold dearly, how are we going to interrelate and interact with a culture that is quickly moving away from any type of Christian distinctive, I think it's important that we lay some foundations that we understand what we believe because just as confusing as it is to have an Episcopal priest who doesn't believe in the tenets of Christianity, I think it's just as confusing for our community and our culture to see people that hold to right doctrine not have it impact the way that they live their daily lives. And for those reasons, we're going into this study. This is an important season in our church. But as a backdrop, you need to understand where we are as a culture. This week, Barna and Associates, they released a new poll. If you don't know who Barna is, they're kind of like the Gallup poll. They do a bunch of surveys, and it's more in the Christian arena. And Barna surveyed over 2,000 people and asked them which religion they identified with. It's interesting, two-thirds of our country identifies if you ask them what religious party they would affiliate with, they would say that they were Christian. But as Barna then took those Christians, those two-thirds of the population, and asked them, what does it mean to be a Christian? What are some of the things that you believe? Their their arguments were quite startling. They basically said of the two-thirds that identify as Christians, only 9% of them hold a Christian worldview. Those identified as Christians when surveyed, 72% would argue that people are basically good. 66% of those identifying with Christians, hear this, say that having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. Hey, the important thing is you believe in something. 58% of the Christian, who those who identify themselves as Christians believe that if a person is good enough or does enough good things, they can earn their way into heaven. 57% of those who identified themselves as Christians believed in the concept of karma. Okay, I blame that on a TV show involving a guy named Earl. I don't know where that comes from, but it's far from Christian. And so as believers... We're creating a confusion in our community because so many identify as Christian, but they don't hold to the tenets of the faith. 
So the goal over the next couple of weeks is just to review, hey, what are the things that we hold dear? And then how do we interact with some of the things that were going on in culture? Last week, we started this series. If you were here, Cal preached in this room. And his point was, he was talking about God, this idea that God is supreme, that, that he is an authority. And it's interesting, we looked at a passage back in Isaiah 44, the verses on the screen. It says, is there a God besides me? This is God speaking. There is no rock, I know not any. And God is talking about people who have replaced worshiping him. They have grown weary. They are now pursuing idols. And he says, listen, there's no other rock that you can cling to. I am supreme in authority. I am uh, supreme in title. I am supreme in position. I am supreme as it relates to you. I have made you. I have chosen you. I have redeemed you. You are three times over mine. And the question that Cal asked is, The fact that God is supreme stands on its own merit regardless of what you think. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, is God supreme to you? Is he the thing that is foundational in your life? Is he your rock? Is he your anchor in a storm? And so this morning as we get into this, we've got this review of that God is supreme as we go into first, or first Peter chapter 2, we're going to continue to talk about rocks a little bit. The second point, if you're keeping notes, is this. Jesus needs to be foundational. And let me tell you what's going on in First Peter 2, so we're just not jumping into the middle of the book. Um, we all kind of know who Peter is here, right? You guys recognize him? Who do you think wrote First Peter? Peter the disciple, right? Uh, kind of the, the head of the posse of disciples. When you see the disciples listed, it's usually Peter's name first. Do you guys remember what Peter was before he was a disciple? He was a fisherman. So was he a scholar? Not so much. He was a working man. He was blue collar. He wasn't white collar. Peter was reactionary. High highs, low lows. He makes the great declaration as it relates to Jesus when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And then they says, who do you say that I am? Peter was the guy that said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And about 10 minutes later, Jesus is looking at him going, get behind me, Satan. He would be the one that would betray, but he's also the one that at the end of his life is crucified upside down because he refuses to be murdered in the same way as his Lord and Savior. And you got to understand, I love Peter. Most believe that Peter was illiterate that his gospel is actually known as the gospel of Mark, that John Mark is the one who penned uh, Peter's account of Jesus' life and ministry. As, As he writes first Peter, we don't know if it's Peter doing the writing. We know that it's Peter communicating it, but he might have had a scribe that had to write it down. And Peter is writing this book, 1 Peter. It says in uh, 1 Peter 1, 1, to elect exiles that are dispersed throughout Asia Minor. And and, and what I'm picturing, just to set the scene, is, is I can almost see Peter based in Jerusalem. He is looking at the temple. And he is thinking about the church that is scattered throughout Asia Minor. They're going through persecution. And he's talking to them to give them an identity. Hey, you're not alone. You're connected to something bigger than you. And and he makes this argument. It's actually quite profound. I'm going to pick it up in verse 4 of 2 Peter 2. 
He says this, he says, as you come to him, and now this is talking to these believers scattered throughout Asia Minor, as you come to him, that being Jesus Christ, he says, you're a living stone of Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy. That word holy there means set apart into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. So the, the people of Israel, the, the Jewish people, they're very, very familiar with sacrifices, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. But Peter is saying we don't any longer bring bulls and goats to be sacrificed. What we're called to bring now our spiritual sacrifices. Well, what does that mean? Well, Romans 12.1 gives us a little bit more information. Paul writes there that he appeals to us brothers, his Christians, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, in the ESV, it's spiritual worship. In the New American Standard, it's your reasonable service. So, so the argument goes like this. Peter is looking at the temple in Jerusalem. He's writing to the believers dispersed throughout Asia Minor. And he's saying, listen, Jesus needs to be your foundation. And you no longer bring sacrifices to the temple to give them to a priest to offer. Our sacrifices now are our lives devoted to Jesus Christ. He's asking the question, is Jesus foundational to you? He's creating this picture for the people that you're like living stones in a building, Jesus being the foundation. And he says this, that you're to offer spiritual sacrifices. And then this next phrase is important. The last phrase of chapter five, he says, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. You can live the best spiritual life. You can be the most devout Christian and your life is only acceptable before God because of the work of Jesus Christ. There's no work that you can do that is like, oh, he's acceptable now. Look at what a good guy he is. Your best efforts are still only acceptable because of what Jesus did on your behalf. And then in verse six, for it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. This is imagery describing Jesus. And he goes, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse seven, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. So, so why do they stumble? Because they don't do what Jesus tells them to do. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter's actually quoting from the Old Testament in those verses from Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118. And what you need to understand is deeply embedded in the heart of an Israeli, of the Jewish people of this day, was that they were God's chosen people. And they were God's holy nation. And the center of their nation was the city of Jerusalem. And in the center of Jerusalem was the temple. All the goodness of God flowed out of this building that was the temple to his holy people. And what Peter is doing here is he's drawing an illustration. He's saying it's no longer the temple that is the cornerstone, the foundation of our identity. The foundation of our identity, what makes us who we are, is the person of Jesus Christ. We're all living stones in a structure that is built on that as the cornerstone, as the foundation. 
Now, now at this building, and if you were to look at the building at Grand Haven, we have a similar cornerstone on each building. It's not really a cornerstone. It's just kind of a plaque on the outside of the building. And, and what that plaque says on both buildings is, it quotes from Psalm, I believe, 127.1, which says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And, and, and we want it to be known that this is about the God that we worship. It's not about anything else as it relates to the church, that Jesus is the name that we lift high. But back then, the foundation, that, was, that cornerstone was the most important piece of the construction. You had to make sure that it was level, and you had to make sure that it was square. Because if you didn't, if that thing wasn't level, as you went up and up and up as a building, that building would begin to lean. It could fall over. If, if it wasn't a sturdy stone, it would quickly collapse. And the idea being presented here is the cornerstone is the most important piece of the entire building. So builders would pick that stone very carefully because it had to be worthy to build the rest of the structure upon. And what Peter is driving home to these believers scattered throughout Asia Minor is simply this. Is Jesus your foundation? Choose carefully. Is he your cornerstone? Or have you built your life on something else? And maybe that thing isn't sturdy. Maybe it isn't worthy. Maybe it'll crumble. See, we've got to be careful what we build our life upon, what is foundational. And there's things that we build our lives on, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. And I'm just telling you, be, be careful, even as a follower of Jesus Christ, if the most important thing to you is your family, if that's your cornerstone, if your kids are the cornerstone of your existence, if that's the thing that you're all about, if your career is the cornerstone of your life, if, if just comfort and pleasure and travel and excitement and adventure, any of these things become the cornerstone of your existence, the most important thing to you, that if you lost that thing, you would be despondent. If Jesus isn't foundational, I just think sometimes life's crumble, don't you? And when we build our lives on anything but Jesus being the foundation, danger. Peter's saying he needs to be the foundation. He is the thing that is precious. He's the thing that you need to choose. And it's usually about this time in a sermon that I start looking at people. And sometimes I feel like you guys are like, okay, give me something practical. Give me something that I can leave this building with that will really impact my life going forward, that, that might be a, a, a um, catalyst for change at my work, in my marriage, with my kids. Please hear me. I don't have anything else to give you. This is the most important thing. Making sure that Jesus is the foundation of everything else you do. Well, well how do I do that? Well, tomorrow's Monday. How could you make Jesus foundational tomorrow? Maybe before your day gets too far, maybe before you're too far into your work day or working with your kids and getting into school and all the different things that we do. Maybe there's a moment that we could just pray. Maybe there's a moment that says, God, I want you to be the main thing in my life today. Maybe we could spend a little bit of time reading his word rather than social media, rather than flipping on the news. 
making choices day by day to make Jesus foundational. This thing isn't a one-time thing. It's not a choice that you make. Well, Jesus is the foundation, and then you go away. This is a choice that I kind of have to make day after day, every day, a commitment that I have to go back to because otherwise, I got to tell you, my heart's prone to wander. How about yours? This is foundational stuff. If we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, God has to be viewed as supreme, and Jesus has to be viewed as foundational. And now we get to the point. Today's not about God. It's not even about Jesus being foundational. The question that I have today, if we talked about God last week, the question is, who are we? Who are we? How, how do we identify ourselves? And Peter's going to get after this in verse 9, but let me illustrate this. So I need a volunteer from the audience. Um, oh, Nick, you sat in the front row. You, you, you know better than this. Why, why don't you come up here? So, so the reason I'm calling on Nick, I'm taking a chance here. I don't know much about Nick and his athletic ability, but he kind of looks like a guy I used to know that thought he was an athlete. So, so, so Nick, here, here you go. And uh, what we're going to do, did you play baseball growing up? No. Okay, so, so, so this might take a little bit more work. So there's going to be home plate. Here's the bat. Do you know how to hold a bat? Sure. Okay, so you got the bat. So let me see your swing. Uh, that way. Okay, how's he doing? Not bad? Okay, so, so if you really wanted to drive a ball, like if you wanted to hit a ball hard, how would you do it? Well, okay, you don't have time to stretch. Like, okay, okay, good. So he's stepping into it. Okay, the one thing we got to work on a little bit with you is bad angle, okay? We've got to get, get your launch angle fixed because it's a little flat. And as I throw these balls to you, I need you to hit them into the balcony, Okay. Listen, please do not drill the people in the front row, okay? I'm, I'm going to need a little elevation on this, or this is going to go really bad, and then I'm going to get emails, and I don't want any part of it, okay? So, so I'm going to give you three pitches, all right? What's that? It's being live streamed. It's on the internet right now, okay? No pressure. Okay, so you're a pull hitter. I'm going to hit it. You're going to hit it up there, okay? Okay, oh, I forgot. One more, one more variable. Put this on. Okay, so put that on. We'll, we'll, we'll go like this. We'll... There you go. I don't want you to be able to see anything. No cheating, okay? Okay, so we're going to give you three pitches, and how we're going to do this is I'm going to count to three. One, two, three. I'll pitch on three, and then you just time the swing, okay? Okay, ready? Um, that's right. You're a lawyer, so if you hit anybody too hard, I might be contacting you for representation. All right? Okay, so Ready? Uh, on three, I throw, you swing, okay? One, two, three. Okay, you missed, you missed that one. Okay, we're going we're gonna to try again on three, okay? One, two, three. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm, I'm throwing you off. Okay, last, last chance. I got the count as 0 and 2. I don't care what you think. You're not the ump. You're the batter, okay? Here's the last one. One, two, three. <laughs> One, two, three. Okay. Thank you. How's that going? Not great. Okay. Do you think it would be easier or harder with the blindfold? If the blindfold was off, you think it would be easier? Should I give you one more pitch without the blindfold? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Because now you want to, don't you? Okay. <laughs> do I dare do this? Are, are you guys covered up? Like, this is such a bad idea. Okay. We'll give you one pitch, one try. Here you go. Okay. There it is. Oh. <laughs> You're coming right back in me. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Okay. 
Why the nonsense? Why the nonsense? Here's why. I would argue this morning that it is easier to hit a wiffle ball blindfolded than it is to attempt to live the Christian life without a good understanding of who you are. And I would argue that in this room, most of us go through lives, our lives, wearing blindfolds, confused about who we are. And because we wear blindfolds and then we're tasked with living the Christian life, it's next to impossible. We don't have a chance. So as we look at this idea of who we are, let me just mention three blindfolds that I think sometimes we put on as we think about ourselves that blind us to the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. Here's the first one. I'm not my past. I'm not my past. There's people in this room who wake up every morning and they have the regrets of things that they've done in their past or things that they didn't do in their past. They look at themselves as an accumulation of their past decisions, past choices, and that's the only way that they can see themselves when they look in the mirror. There could be some in this room who, who grew up in a house and, and parents were well-intentioned and well-meaning and they set a bar very high on who they wanted you to be and expectations, be it in sports or in academics or whatever it is. And, and maybe you're one of those that grew up in a home and you heard the words like, I can't believe you fell short again. You're never going to amount to anything. And, and, and those type of things seared your conscience. And you view yourself by your failures of the past. It can actually work both ways. Maybe you grew up in a home where all your parents did was affirm you and you're the best and you're a snowflake and there's nobody like you. When we view ourselves through the lens of the events of our past, the choices that we've made, our successes or our failures... Tell you what, we're at risk. As a follower of Jesus Christ, your past does not get to define you. Let me mention another blindfold that I think some of us put on. We put on our performance. They were blindfolded and, and we are not the accumulation of our performance. Working in business, comparing what I was doing as a wealth manager to the indexes, to the Dow, to the S&P. Well, that goes really good when you beat it for a year. But what about when you're trailing the performance measures that you're comparing yourself to? It's interesting this week, my daughter Catherine, I told this last night, I can tell this with permission. Um, Catherine's not like me. She's academic. Um, she cares about stuff like grades. Straight A student all the way through high school. I don't think she's any, ever gotten anything lower than an A through all of her undergraduate work and master's work. She's currently finishing her master's at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, I was quite fond of Bs. They seemed to be a good balance of my intellect and my effort. A B was where I landed. Okay, Catherine's not that way. She's, she's driven to get an A. Well, earlier this week, she was working on a class in her, for her master's, and she got her grade back on the paper that she had just submitted, and it was a B-minus. 
Ooh, like, like no sympathy from this guy, right? And, um, but whoa, I got a B minus and that's the lowest grade I've gotten ever. And I'm like, well, there's issues there too. But, but she was rattled. So, so she called the prof or the teacher's aide. I don't know who she talked to, but she's like, hey, help me understand because I thought I actually did a fairly decent job on the assignment. And he says, well, this is what happened. This is what happened. And she's like, okay, I'm just trying to understand. I'm not trying to complain. I'm just trying to understand how I can do better. And the prof said, you know, you got the highest grade in the class. <laughs> and then Catherine's like, what kind of prof makes the B minus the highest grade? Like there's a curve. Like I, you know, like, come on. And, and but all of a sudden, you see, you see how easy that is, right? And all of a sudden we define ourselves by our performance. Poor Nick hitting the line drive right back at the pitcher instead of putting it in the upper deck. You know, now, now you got to question your athletic prowess. You know, all of that is on the line. Listen, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we're not defined by our past. We're not defined by, defined by our performance and we're not defined by our position. Some of us allow our careers to define who we are. You work at a bank and you're a junior vice president. And then you go home and, hey, I got great news. I've been promoted to a vice president and then to an executive vice president. So, so your business card changes, your plaque changes on your desk. Your kids don't care if you're a junior executive or a senior executive. The only ones that might care are the other guys who didn't get promotions who are now jealous of you at work. Your title doesn't matter. But very, very quickly, we get defined by our position. That can be your job. That can be your, your role at work. I could be defined as, as a pastor. I could let that become my identity. Um, for others in the room, your identity is parent. Right now, your life is all about your kids. You're pouring yourself into family. And that's a wonderful thing. Just don't let it steal your identity. Because the day will come when the kids will head off to college and you'll drop them off. And then you'll be looking at your spouse and go, what happened to the thing that was our entire identity that we built our lives upon? I, I kind of feel like things are crumbling because the foundation isn't as secure as I thought it was going to be. So, so here's what I would like to suggest this morning, because we're very good at trying to identify and evaluate ourselves and define who we are. And sometimes that's by our past, our performance, our position. It can also be based off other people's perceptions. We can be the accumulation of our problems. We allow so many things to define who we are. Here's what I would suggest this morning as followers of Jesus Christ. I think it would be profitable. I think it would be worthwhile for us to allow our identity be, to be shaped by who God says we are. Sound like a plan? That's what Peter does in verse 9 of 2 uh, Peter 2. Let me read it to you. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So if you're keeping notes, the first point is this, that I am chosen. If, if you're a Christian this morning, you need to understand you are chosen by God. You didn't choose God primarily. God chose you. You would never be driven to the choice of choosing God if God hadn't moved first. The Bible is clear on this. 
We aren't even aware that we are sinners until God enlightens us of this. But God, the almighty creator of the universe, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he began a work in your heart to prick your conscience, to show you the need of a savior. He provided that savior to take your place on the cross. And then he drew you to the work and the redemption that's offered through Jesus Christ as Lord. You are chosen by the creator of the universe. Now, when I did my notes, I had this point chosen, but there's three other statements that you are a, role, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I, I, I combined them under this term set apart, but there's actually three more things. So the first being chosen, and then the rest are going to fall under this label of, of set apart. But please hear me. If you understand these two things, the set apart and chosen, it should impact the way that you view yourselves and it should impact. It, it, quite honestly, it has to impact the way that you live. A couple things about chosen. God chose you. It was a solitary decision of God. He made it, not you. He had no counsel. He chose you in, on his own, not based off your merits. This truth crushes any sort of self-pride. If you view yourself as chosen by God, what do you have to be prideful about? He chose you. Your election is totally of grace. It's not based off the things you did. It's not based off something special about you. And if you understand that God made the choice independently and it's not based off your performance, it's totally by grace, that should drive us to live with a heart of gratitude for what he's done. His choice of you is eternal. This should give you a security. There is nothing as a follower of Jesus Christ that you're going to do to, to, to leave this place today. And God goes, I don't want anything more to do with that guy. I give up. Done pursuing, done revealing, out of grace. That never happens. You've been eternally chosen by God. That gives us a hope and that gives us a security. And then finally, if we understand that we are chosen by God, it gives us an identity in a fallen world. Because we've got people wandering around our community that believe that they are the result of random processes of, of, of sheer chance without a designer. And they're lost. And it leads to hopelessness. But understanding that the creator of the universe chose us should drive us to joy. Here's the second thing, a royal priesthood. And I want to develop this for a minute because it's interesting. If you study history and the history of religion, almost any religion that you can study, almost any set of beliefs that you can find in that religious structure, you're going to find the equivalent of a priest. doesn't matter if they believe in a God, many gods, you will find across the gamut of religions, you'll see this office repeated, this idea of priest, somebody that stands in the gap between God and man, a representative for man. It says in Hebrews 5.1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed, hear this, to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the role of the priest in the Old Testament was they were a representation of the nation of Israel. The nation would bring their sacrifices to the priests. The priests would offer them has a go-between, someone that stood in the gap between the nation and a holy God. Now, the rest of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is going to make the argument that Jesus Christ is a better high priest. Our high priest in offering himself is now the only priest that we need because his sacrifice, his blood, covers our sins for all time. We no longer have to make annual 
sacrifices of bulls and goats, that Jesus is our high priest. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. For us, Jesus is our priest. He stands in the gap. There's no priests at harvest. Have you noticed that? We only have one high priest. All of us have equal access to the throne of grace through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, our Savior. The veil's been torn. We all have access, not just a few. So how does that impact the way that we live? If God is identifying us as, as priests, you need to understand, not only was the priest a representation of man to God, it actually worked the other way. For the nation of Israel, the priests also represented God to man. You can see it in the way that they dressed, their robes, the uh, process, the purity that they went through. They represented themselves as set apart. They were holy like God in the people's eyes. As we live as priests, we are called to be a representation of God to our community by the way we live our lives. Here's a third thing. We're a holy nation. That word holy, again, it means that we're set apart, that you're no longer your own, that God has called you as a people. And then it says, a people for his own possession. Those words are actually precious. Because because what God's saying is, he's going, I didn't set you apart to be set apart. I set you apart because you're mine. You're a people for my own possession. So I'm thinking about the audience to this letter scattered abroad, under persecution, not sure what they're connected to. And Peter is writing from Jerusalem saying, listen, the nation and the people of God is no longer just the nation of Israel, but God is choosing a new nation from every tribe, every uh, tongue, every people group. They're going to be his people set apart for his possession to accomplish his purposes. So not only are we chosen, not only are we set apart by being described as a holy nation, a people for his own possession, but we're also placed on mission. We're set on mission. Look at what it says next. It says in verse 9, the end of verse 9, that you have been set apart, that you have been chosen, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're also set on mission. Well, Well, what is the mission that we've been sent on? We better be sure about this. If Jesus is the one who has the authority because he is the foundation and the cornerstone, if he has the foundation to tell us who we are, then we better understand what also he's called us to do, what our mission is, right? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here's the first point. You might wonder where I got this. Number one, we need to proclaim who Jesus Christ is. You see it right there in the text, that we are called to live as missionaries. You're like, I didn't sign up for this. That's a whole nother level of Christian commitment. Not going to Africa. Ain't happening. Well, here's a news flash. You might not be called to Africa, but each one in this room, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you're set on mission. You're given a task, a responsibility to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
All of us have been called out of darkness. That's our past. Don't be identified by your past. Understand that your past, the things that you've done, they've been left in the dark. Jesus Christ, through the work on the cross, has healed us. We are forgiven as we stand in the light, his marvelous light. Here's a second thing we're not just called to proclaim, and I think this is important. We need to understand what it means to proclaim, and he's going to give us some information on exactly what it means. Rather than proclaim, can I introduce another word? You won't see it in the text, but hopefully you'll see it in the essence of what the text says next. We're not just called to proclaim, we're called to model. It says this, Beloved, I urge you, or it says in verse 10, once you were a people, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have received mercy, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If, if we've received mercy, we are called to be a communicator of that mercy to others. And then he says in verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Okay, let me stop there for a minute. I, I, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Okay, he's writing to what he called elect exiles, but in other places in the New Testament, we're told, hey, this world is not our home. We're traveling through because we belong to a heavenly kingdom because God has made us our own. And he's saying you need to see yourself, you need to identify yourselves as not belonging to the world. You belong now as a holy nation, as a people of his possessions, you belong to God. And he's saying his sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. Okay, what are the passions of the flesh? Galatians gives us a picture. It says in Galatians 5, verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. And then it gives us a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Okay, an exhaustive list. The only reason I put that on the board is I want to point one thing out to you. When we think about the desires of the flesh, we tend to think of those as saying, okay, that's sexual sin. Well, the list contains much more. Of the things on the list, four of them relate to sexual sin. Two of them relate to false worship. One of them relates to drunkenness. And eight of them relate to faulty relationships. And the way that we view and treat and hold grudges and Refuse to forgive other people. That abstain, it's not a word that we use very often. My, my wife doesn't go to the grandkids, hey, abstain from those cookies. <laughs> the, the word means get away. I, I was in Alaska recently, and while we were there, uh, my brother went out from our cabin where we were quarantined because of COVID to make a phone call at about 10.30 at night. As he came back, he heard a raccoon in the bushes next to him. He's like, I wonder where that raccoon's coming. And it was a full-size grizzly bear by the time he saw it. Okay, if I run into a grizzly bear, I have one thing on my mind, abstain. <laughs> get away from that thing. Okay, so the idea is get away from the passions of the flesh. And then it says this, which wage war against your soul. See, see, here's the danger. This is why I don't like grizzly bears. Because if you get too close to a grizzly bear, what will a grizzly bear do to you? He will eat you. 
He will grab you. He will rip you apart from the outsides in, and he will eat your insides. What Peter's saying here is he goes, hey, be really careful about the passions of the flesh. And they might not eat you from the outside in, but they're going to eat you from the inside out. They wage war against your soul. And he's just not saying these things. He's saying these as a backdrop to who he just told you you were and who your identity was as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then I find this interesting. At the end of verse, uh, in verse 12, it says, keep, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of, against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Just a couple things. So that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, not if, when, keep your conduct clean amongst those who aren't followers of Jesus Christ and understand that sometimes they're going to speak evil of you because of your godly conduct. So here's what Saturday morning looks like for Kristen and I yesterday. We've got grandkids that are signed up for different soccer things in town. So we do what most grandkids and parents do on a Saturday in the Tri-Cities. We bounce around to soccer games, right? So we had an 8.30, a 9, an 11, and a 2.45 yesterday. Four soccer games. And Kristen's like, which ones do you want to go to? Which ones do you not want to go to? Can we make them all? I said, we're making them all today. We're going to every one. And the reason for that is because it's nice outside and it's sunny. And this season ends later in October, and we want some chips so that we don't have to go to those games because we're, we're not dumb grandparents, okay? So, so, so we went to every game yesterday because it was nice out. And um, as I went from game to game to game to game, it was very interesting what I saw. I kept seeing all these kids that attend Harvest and the parents of Harvest kids and the grandparents of Harvest kids. Some of them were, were coaches, of, of, the, of the little guys that were playing in the league. Some of them were referees. Some of them were small group members that didn't have kids that were sitting with small group members that have kids. The Harvest community interacting and engaging with the community on Saturday mornings at soccer fields. Listen, I can preach the good news till I'm blue in the face, but it doesn't matter if people don't see trans live, transform lives by the gospel in and around them and the way they approach difficulty, the way they respond to trials, and the joy that they have in spite of their circumstances. That's what it means to proclaim and to model. And it's going on every day. That's your job. That's your role. That's what God has called you to because that's your mission because that's your identity. Let me just say this. Our goal at Harvest is to develop people, to disciple people, so that Jesus is foundational in their lives. 100 years from now, nobody's going to remember me, nobody's going to remember you, and they certainly aren't going to remember how they identified you or you identified yourself. A hundred years from now, whatever you think you are, your, your past or your performance or what your job title was, all of those things are going to drift away. People's perceptions of you will be long gone. And a hundred years from today, one opinion will matter, and that is the opinion of Jesus Christ and who he says you are. 
If that's true 100 years from now, why isn't it true of us today? Maybe you've come into this place and you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about, identifying with Jesus Christ, and and I've never committed my life to Jesus Christ, and I'm not in that plan. I would just challenge you. So what is that thing that is foundational in your life? What's that rock that you're anchored to? What's that thing that you've placed your identity on? What's the thing that you look for to satisfy you? What is your ultimate source of joy? What's going to hold you through the difficult seasons of life? Are you comfortable that you found that thing? Because the creator of the universe is calling out to you that he loves you, that he cares for you, and he's choosing to make you a people of his own possession. Have you considered the claims of Jesus? And if you're here this morning and you're a a, a church-going, card-carrying evangelical, like two-thirds of the rest of our country would identify themselves as, I would be asking you, are you one of those rare people who claim the name of Jesus Christ, who say, I want him to be foundational, I want him to be my everything, and I want to see myself through his eyes, not my own impression of myself. Because here's the wonderful news, when we do that, We understand that we are precious. The text says we are beloved. And we are people of his own possession. Father, I thank you for um, this time. I thank you for your word. And I thank you for a transformed fisherman. Though not very well trained through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gets really profound. Father, we are tempted to view ourselves through so many different lenses. Father, let your lens be the thing through which we view who we are. Father, it is a privilege to approach you in prayer. Only made possible because you love us, because you chose us, and you demonstrated yourself and your love for us through your Son. Let us not take that for granted. Father, my prayer would be this morning that if there's people in this room who would have to acknowledge, I've been wearing blindfolds about who I am. I'm in bad space because I sure don't identify myself as Peter just identified me. I pray that you would do a work in their hearts today. I pray that as followers of Jesus who are struggling in their faith, that you would give them hope that this morning was encouraging for them. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. Father, give us the courage in the midst of a community that is is struggling, sometimes in the dark, to be the light that you've called us to be. It's in your name we pray. Amen.